1: Hi, this is Nadine Dietz, host of CMO Moves. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thanks so much for stopping by today and to give you a quick overview on what to expect. CMO Moves is all about game-changing leaders, their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. I hope you'll enjoy their stories as much as I do and take away a few tips and some inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. Today I have Deborah Yeh with me, who is the CMO of Sephora. Hi, Nadine. Hi. I'm so happy we could finally do this. We've been talking about this for a while now, and so what an exciting day to finally have you on, share your amazing story. It's uh, here. It's here. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. And I always start by asking my guests to tell me about their current role and, and why they decided to take that on, but. A shocking fact here is you've been at Sephora for more than eight years. You, you're winning awards about longevity here, I have to tell you. So, <laughs> But do, do tell us about your role and when did actually the role of CMO start for you at Sephora?
0: Yeah, sure. So I am leading the marketing organization at Sephora, which is such a fantastic job because I get to support a full range of marketers from studio photographers to data scientists. And I've been in the organization for eight years, which is on the extreme end of the bell curve. As you point out, I read an article that says that the average tenure for a CMO is maybe about 40 months. So this is definitely pushing the scales I just thought I would share that story a little bit because while sticking with a brand isn't common, I have found that it has been so rewarding and has had so many benefits for me, uh, primarily because what rewards me and motivates me at an organization is impact. Um, And I just find that you can't do that deeply if you only have a surface view of the brand and the organization. So I have stuck around and now I am fully accountable.
1: Wow, okay. Well, I'd love to talk to you more about impact and and the impact that you've been able to have there. Um, But before we, we do that, it's not always a popular career route to stick it out, but you've managed to do that. Is there any other advice or tips you would give right now for someone who's considering staying or going at the brand that they're at?
0: Yeah. I'll just tell a little bit of a personal story. It is true that I actually didn't always feel this way. I actually, when I came to the organization didn't know if I would survive past my first year at Sephora. I didn't come from a beauty background. At the time, our team was in flux. Uh, We were in the middle of a relocation from New York to San Francisco, and I hadn't yet found my community within the organization. But I found that there was room to eventually shape the team that I wanted to work for. And going forward, I discovered so much richness in being a builder and really staying and cultivating a team. So if someone's out there thinking a little bit about staying versus going, I would just say consider what you can do to really dig in and um, be a part of the growth of an organization.
1: What are some good signs maybe that you can be part of reshaping an organization or some tips like are there relationships that are critical to build as you think about that?
0: I think part of growing in an organization is knowing a place well enough to find the right points of leverage. So that means building internal networks, that means really getting to know the team, And great signs include having those connections of folks who are excited to bring in somebody who's maybe a little bit different in the organization and have a conversation about what kind of place you want it to be together. And that was a a huge part of my story and journey at Sephora. I mean, we did everything from thinking about what were the processes that we wanted to have as a marketing organization to who did we want to be as a culture. And being able to be a part of that was incredibly rewarding.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when you came in, it was eight years ago, did you come in right into the CMO role or has that evolved or morphed? <laughs> it has totally evolved and morphed. So I came
0: in as a VP of marketing, reporting into a CMO at the time. This was in the middle of that organizational transformation that I was mentioning. When I joined, I had, I believe like 10 people reporting to me and now we have hundreds. So it was really a growth period uh, of time in the organization. And I like to say that additional functions and responsibilities kept on sticking to me as I grew in the organization and as as the organization grew, a little bit like socks coming out of the dryer. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, now we have a full suite of marketing practitioners and I'm really excited to be able to have that uh, span of
1: control and um, influence. Actually, you're, you're reminding me going back, oh, geez, probably... <clears throat> must've been like mid 2018. I'm thinking, uh, Mary Beth Lawton was at Sephora then she's now, totally. I believe the CEO of Athleta. That's right. Um, yeah. And she was, I think at the time her title was EVP of Omnichannel and you guys were sort of co-leading marketing, but it was definitely different. Has that changed? Has that work? Because I think the whole world's thinking about that differently. (laughs) Yes, it's it's probably
0: changed about four different times since uh, Mary Beth and I, and we actually started within a couple of weeks of each other. And at the time, the organization had positioned e-commerce as its own division with a suite of capabilities underneath it to support it as a unique channel. But of course, over time, you know, you want to serve a consumer, you don't want to serve a channel. And so we have been uh, pushing back and forth various functions to become increasingly client centric over the years.
1: I love that Uh, client centric, customer centric, consumer centric, you are speaking my language and people do struggle. I mean, I think there are thousands of iterations of a marketing organization today, and that continues to morph with new functionality, new thinking, new processes. And we've just gone through a very turbulent year. How are you thinking about things today? Has anything changed in your mind moving forward given this year? Well,
0: it still comes back to the customer. I mean, when we think about what is the fundamental skill set that you need for a chief marketing officer, it is grounding yourself in the consumer and what they need in their lives at that time. You know, it's been a turbulent year because the consumer's year has been turbulent. All of our years have been turbulent, but the fundamental around understanding what they need both from a like emotional standpoint to a kind of more you know basic bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy standpoint is still pretty essential. So we've been thinking about how to uh, be more convenient for them as their shopping habits change, as well as what do they need to hear from us as a brand as their point of view about who they're going to patronize uh, has changed
1: hmm You know, it's interesting. You remind me also that we have a collaboration team that's around authentically connecting with the consumer right now. And part of that is being able to authentically hear them. How, how are you thinking about really understanding their needs right now and then being responsible? So
0: we have dialed up all of our social and market research listening practices in the past few months. Of course, they were pretty big parts of how we go about our work and go to market, but they tended to be seasonal efforts, right? You look at those big trends on a seasonal basis, and you know things are frankly just changing so quickly that we have needed to be much more intimate and much more turnkey in both how we're listening and then how we respond. So it was a p- pretty big change for us to uh, step back in the spring and really think about, all right, how are we going to be in relationship with this consumer? And it changed a lot for us, everything from how do we approach our social content to what do we actually need to offer in terms of services and value add as an organization to these consumers whose lives
1: were being turned upside down. Gosh, there's so much to dig into here. The skills of social listening are important to build as a marketer and the tools that you use. And, and that's a lot of the, the discussion that we're having in that particular collaboration team. But is there is there something that's worked well for you or something that you're particularly proud of in the last few months that just demonstrate the, the power that you've amassed there? From an informal standpoint, we're doing a lot more with regards to understanding what's
0: happening in terms of social sentiment, because that's how people are, they're at home and they're expressing themselves. Um, But you'd be surprised, even on the formal end of things, um, you know, one of the things we actually did relatively recently is we commissioned a pretty big study around bias and unfair treatment at retail. Um, This had been a subject that we were thinking about prior to the pandemic, but given the conversation around social justice right now, even more important for us to be using our formal tools to make sure that
1: we were addressing the zeitgeist. Wow. Okay. That's a big topic in and of itself. Um, I'm sure the industry would benefit from that. Is that something that uh, you're able to to share maybe at some point, some of the, the results from that research? I mean, that's such an important topic. Yeah, totally. One of the things
0: that we're seeing right now is that there's just a demand that brands respond to the moment that we're having with actions in that words. The study that we did this spring showed that half of retail shoppers want to see diversity in marketing only if that brand is committed to serving diverse shoppers. So this basically means that we have to think about our role in the industry, our industry being marketing and retail, and, you know, so one of the things that we realized is the, the fact that the retail industry itself is not necessarily a safe and equitable space for all. So this is the, the kind of genesis for us digging into this particular area. You know, a Gallup poll, which is not our own study, but some external research showed that um, black Americans are more likely to experience unfair treatments in a retail setting than they are in dealings with the police. So, you know, this is really alarming, but when you think about it, pretty intuitive, you know, the sheer volume of human interaction between strangers and retail can create good connections, but also disappointing and even outright negative ones. So we wanted to go about this using all the skills that we have as marketers to understand the consumer, try to like get our hands around this very big problem. How big is it? What are the drivers? Why is it happening? Where is it happening? And then use our skills from an innovation standpoint, from a listening standpoint, to be data-driven and understand, well, what can retailers do to make it better? So we're excited about this. It's a, it's a national study on retailers, including Sephora, but also other categories for us to hopefully as a player in the retail industry, start to chip away at what is clearly not a great experience for all and to just make it better so that we can be more welcoming for, for
1: all customers. Oh, I love this. Okay, I'm so excited for you to share this out. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of important tips for everyone to follow. So just so I'm clear and anybody listening who's excited about this, what do they need to do to accesses? Do they just have to wait until you release it? Will you be sharing it? <laughs> like, Because I know people are like salivating. Okay, how do I get my hands on this? So
0: we're going to share some of the top line findings openly because we believe that they should be you know, a shared asset for, for all retailers. We have partnered with a couple of retailers who have come forward to get a little bit deeper into the data. And the only requirement was that they actually put these learnings into practice. This isn't about like a wonderful thing to go on to the bookshelf. This is actually about us holding hands and agreeing as organizations that we will use our ability to shape consumer retail experiences to to make the experience better for all. So we have a couple of closer partners who have agreed to do that. If there are organizations who are interested, we will have basically a couple of places where they can go to download the ebook, get a little bit more information and dive a little bit deeper with us and
1: and our study team. Excellent. Any tips coming out of that right now that you could just share as here's one thing people can consider to do differently that would make a big difference?
0: There are some things that are basically low hanging fruit. It is really straightforward stuff like being consistent in how you greet the customer, being consistent in offering help and advice. We find that these are things that are expected of retailers by consumers of all backgrounds, but especially important for consumers of color to be seen and served in a way that is equal and fair. Um, It's also just giving us a better sense of the metrics that we need to apply to our business. We, like many organizations, have used metrics like customer satisfaction to understand how we're doing with our consumers. And incidences of profiling and discrimination may not show up as being statistically significant. And in fact, actually, our study shows that this these incidents do occur, but 70% of consumers react in a way that is a little bit more passive, doesn't actually get back to the organization. So one of the takeaways is that marketers and, and retailers especially need to way tune up their sensitivity in terms of hearing about these incidents and responding to them. Because although they're statistically insignificant, boy, like, any one of these moments is, is just one too many
1: mm-hmm. absolutely especially what it that one single moment becomes highly visible on social you got it oh yeah holy cow i could spend the whole time talking to you about this i'm fascinated um because that's just me uh you know obviously we do a lot of work here at Adweek week with our dei council you're on our steering committee and, uh, these are really important topics and I had no idea we were going to talk about this today, uh, frankly, but, uh, <laughs> so I, want to, I want to keep talking to you about this, but I, I will, I will pause. Cause there's so much more I need to get to, um, but I want to hear more about you, your journey, your path, your yeah. tips. And so let's, let's keep everybody, you know, informed along. I promise everybody who's listening, they probably are equally excited about this as I am. We'll be back with more, but let's hear about your journey because yeah. there's so much to offer here.
0: All right, uh, where to begin?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's begin at the beginning. Did you ever think you would be in marketing as a CMO? You
0: know, no, uh, because I didn't have a concept for it. Um, You know, my parents were immigrants and both achieved educational and professional success, but they went into medicine and education. And so they couldn't offer any perspective to me in business, let alone branding. I'm sharing this actually because I actually think that as the industry thinks about diversity and inclusion, it's important to consider how we get more young people to dream about CMOs being CMOs when they grow up and giving them the skills to be successful. You know, in my journey, in my first job, I learned how to write a professional cover letter and leave a professional voicemail. I mean, these were like really basic skills, but they were fundamental to me not only you know, starting to think about what my career could be, but just like being successful in those first few steps. I wanted to note that just because I think as we build hiring and onboarding programs, we may want to consider many backgrounds that are coming in. And those early steps could make all the difference. And they certainly did for me.
1: Mm-hmm. So absolutely. Now you're touching on a whole nother thing that we do a lot of here is uh, mentoring and career tips and building your portfolio of skills, not just hard skills, but soft skills. And then thinking about managing you, you know, how do you think about building a personal brand? How do you think about where you want to go next? So as you talk about those early things that you learned, what was sort of your vision uh, that that helped you navigate to where you are right now?
0: Yeah, you know, I think... Uh, Looking back, I got to where I am now, partly just by being curious. I am somebody who's fascinated by ideas. We already talked about consumers and consumer listening. I love learning about consumers. And for me, one thing led to another. I think you kind of start with this curiosity about what's happening with consumers. And then you find yourself taking those insights and putting them into practice to broader and broader circles and broader and broader applications and touch points in marketing. Um, and pretty soon, like I said, socks coming out of the dryer, you end <laughs> up with a full suite of uh, marketing
1: practices. Well, I'm sure you do, right? Because if if ever it's been more true, it's today is that if you absolutely want to provide the best customer experience, you either have to own or successfully influence any component that might impact their experience and that's everything from the technology to the data to the privacy to the experience so how do you not own it all and how do you influence that's I mean, I I don't even know how to ask you the question because you do seem like you've got all the socks attached to you now, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a team effort, right? So this is actually where we start to talk a little bit about what does the CIMN do vis-a-vis the rest of the operating committee, the rest of the executives in the organization, because you find that there are intersections, a really well-tuned organization. Everybody in that executive committee is thinking about the customer, not just the marketer. I can be an advocate for the customer And I can maybe shed a light on some things that we were maybe not looking at before, but at the end of the day, when it comes to fully activating the organization, we have to do it
1: together. Absolutely. And I I love where you're going because fully activate the organization. That is not just about rallying around the brand on the outside. That's about living the brand on the inside. And especially through this year, you would have had to spend a lot of time with your C-suite counterparts talking about the impact on the outside and also on the inside, and you being a highly specialized, experienced voice on the the heartbeat of what was happening in the community.
0: I hope I could do that for my organization. Um, Sometimes I tell my counterparts in the company, hey, I'm going to say something here, and maybe this is a little bit out of the normal realm of what I would share, but I would be remiss not to put this on the table hey, I'm seeing a trend and it's my obligation to bring this to us and, and have a conversation about that. That actually even applies to kind of the organization as well. We see our employees as being pretty important stakeholders. I like to say that they're actually one of my most important marketing tools. And so the connection between what we're saying in the outside for our consumer and what we're saying in the inside for our employees, that's a super tight connection. But I think actually this this all kind of gets back to maybe something that we talked about at the earlier conversation about like, why be at an organization for a long amount of time? I think that the cross-functional partnership with my peers is a benefit of that long tenure um, because you really get to build towards a true collegiality as an executive team. And it's totally necessary. I do think that like more than 50% of my job is mm-hmm. lateral influence. So, you know, like a good functional relationship has to start with those connections between people. And I like to tell people like a quick test to see how you're doing with your executive suite is like, are you on a text message basis with your executive (laughs) committee? Because it's gotta be like that intimate and that fast. We actually started a group chat a few years ago at Sephora and it's actually one of the most enjoyable threads I'm on, but it's completely essential to leading the business these days.
1: Oh, that's great. I love that. So I'm thinking about it in my own world Like, yeah, I do a lot on Slack, a lot on email, but where things happen is probably through text messaging, to be honest.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, like, you know, you can say things
1: in emojis that you can't say in an email. (laughs) (laughs) That is so true. I love that. Cool. So let's go back to that point in time where you were talking about when you first were getting started in your career. Yeah. And you started taking the steps forward. You ultimately found your way into marketing. What are some of the big aha moments along the way which either did get you to pivot or helped you build to the next level? If I look back,
0: some of the things that really supported that growth for me at least involved volunteering and putting myself forward to essentially be the junior lieutenant in the boardroom. I think that you you qualify to be a CMO when you have the marketing chops. But to get the bigger job, I think that it's just more than marketing chops. You have to prove that you can be an executive to the company. And so some of the formative moments for me involved, for instance, I was at Gap Inc. for a number of years, and the, the room to be in was commercial planning. This is basically the war room where we would put the plans for the quarter, the season, literally on the walls and being a part of those conversations you get to see how an executive team makes decisions what are the levers that the ceo can pull on the business um super super important to observe and, and be a part of similarly at sephora one of the first few things i did when i got there was to volunteer to facilitate the strat planning process this was partly to just get to know the executive team a little bit better But it also just gave me such a great bird's eye view of the organization and the decisions it was going to be making over the next couple of years. I felt like it really helped equip me to understand the context, the business context for the marketing things uh, that we were doing as an organization and helped me as a marketer really support the total growth plan of
1: of the brand. That is such great advice. And I, I have to say, I typically don't do this, but, um, I I'm so proud of my mentee right now. We have an Adweek executive mentee. I actually have several mentees, but one of them in particular, we were talking about how to really get out there and prove yourself and learn about the business. And one of the suggestions was for her to just be proactive and reach out cross-functionally and start working with different members getting to know exactly what you just said and the reason I why i want to bring this up is because literally it took only two months and she was offered a promotion and a really big one to lead a whole new brand team mm. and it works so I, I i just really value you sharing that um because I, you know this wasn't something novel that i came up with i've heard the advice you just demonstrated the advice works for you i think it's really important that people not be shy and they take the lead and they go that extra mile.
0: Yeah, I mean it gives people such great exposure to the organization and additional advocates, right? So when I'm talking to people in skip level conversations and we're thinking about their careers, I say to them, I want you to meet your aunties and uncles. And this is a very kind of Asian term, but basically, you know, this is the <laughs> idea of like, I am here to be a you know corporate parent, but I also have a bigger family. And this organization is a big family. And you want to know all of these folks who can support you and give you different uh, pieces of learning, maybe ones that I can't personally provide. And so it's great perspective in a company, but also gives people an opportunity to grow skills that perhaps their
1: direct supervisor can offer. I love it. It's such good advice. Probably the best career advice ever. Um, and I like this aunties and uncles. It's so, <laughs> it's so dang cute. I love it. Um, but you did mention something there as well. You are part of the Asian community and we hosted the Asian American Summit uh, quite recently. Maybe it was two or three months ago. And it was eye-opening. A very, very fascinating and important discussion to be had with many of your friends and, and peers who were there on the panel and they were sharing some of the challenges and the burdens that they have to face and carry being from the Asian American community. In this particular discussion, a lot of it was based around the increase of COVID anger and irrational hate towards that community, but in general, just challenges throughout their career. And I'm wondering, have you experienced any of these things that you might be able to give some perspective or guidance on for anyone else who's tuning in?
0: I didn't, as I was going through my career, label the challenges I faced as unique to my Asianness. But, you know, looking back, um, I'm sure that there were times when I was code switching to appear in a certain way. I've heard at times in my career, things like you should smile more, it's all of that kind of micro stuff that kind of gets under your skin. Um, like, why would you say that? Why, why would you say that? That is troubling. Um, and so I think that, you know, having seen some of the outright hate and xenophobia facing the Asian community, the last few months due to COVID has at least woken me up to what is happening to this community that sometimes it's a little bit invisible. We oftentimes, even in our own kind of multicultural marketing practice, think about kind of the largest segments, the most visible segments. The Asian segment is one that is incredibly diverse. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, huge range of socioeconomic status, huge range in linguistic and cultural backgrounds. There's not one narrative or story for the quote unquote us. There is such interesting diversity in this group of um, consumers and executives, that I would be remiss not to tap back into that. So over the spring, I started to get together more often with other senior Asian leaders in marketing to actually exchange stories and to talk about what we can do to one, advocate for our community, but also, by the way, stand in solidarity with other communities who are suffering during this time and have you know faced systemic oppression and challenges throughout their careers. And I think the Asian community faces this like modern minority myth, which people say is a positive. What's what's wrong with a stereotype if it's a positive stereotype? But anything that like dehumanizes people and prevents them from expressing their individuality can be a negative. I mean, we are in a creative practice. Marketing is a creative practice, and it's really disappointing if people assume this is a marketer who is going to be really great at the analytics but maybe a little bit less, you know, strong on the brand part of the equation. So, you know, even that could be something that we can work on as a community to continue to challenge and disprove.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So, Deborah, before I ask you my last question. Yeah. Any other tips you want to share with the community today who's tuning in? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think that we've covered a full range of topics today. <laughs> we um, sure
0: have. And I think we've maybe
1: set up for several other conversations for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's go to the last question, and then we'll come back and do some more things later on. Yeah. So if you were not a CMO today uh-huh. and money and talent were of no object, what would you do?
0: Okay, so I want to know whether or not you want my fanciful answer to this question or the serious answer to the question.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with the former first, but I want both.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. So here, we'll start with the fanciful. So, you know, when I was in my 20s, I thought briefly about quitting my job and taking an apprenticeship as uh, at a bakery near my apartment. I, I love working with my hands. I love making things and I love baking. But then I realized that I would have to get up crazy early in the morning and basically discarded the dream. Maybe someday I'll get back to it. At this point in the pandemic, I will say I'm happy to join the millions of other folks baking artisan bread in their home ovens, um, and maybe managing their stress with their carbohydrates. Um, and I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> content with my day job as a marketer. So that's that's the fanciful answer. The serious answer is that I think that if I weren't a marketer, I'd be a behavioral scientist of some sort. You know, I fell into marketing because I love psychology and thinking about what makes consumers tick. We spent a lot of time today talking about that. I would say that After a career of spending so much time thinking about what makes people buy stuff, I'd maybe next apply some of this energy to kind of thinking about what makes people give, like their time, their money, their energy. So in another life, or maybe as a retirement project, that's going to be the next place to pull my curiosity and to dive into, you know, greater level of understanding.
1: Okay. I love that. I can totally see that by the way, just based on, on what we covered today. I do like the managing the stress around the carbohydrates idea <laughs> as well. Um, but if, if you ever do pursue that path, there's so many ways to apply that, especially when we think about sustainability and taking care of our planet, our people, our products, right. you know, that, what is it going to take for us to give back to our future? Um, I would love to explore that with you one day all right all Let's, right uh
0: take those intentions and put them into action
1: you got it i'm i'm in i'm committed okay cool uh thank you so much for being with me today it's been a pleasure likewise and we'll talk again soon sounds good it's a date acast powers the world's best podcasts here's the show that we recommend